I noticed on one of the things that I was reading about the conference that um, it was like kingdom of God and business, you know. I was thinking, well, I don't have a job. Um, about 17 years old, I decided I never wanted a job. Uh, not like people in the 60s and early 70s decided they didn't want a job, but it was different. I decided that I wanted a life. I had uh, been in Samford University for a short while in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was walking through the library. And I was looking for a book up here, so I did not notice that there were books on the floor that uh, were all stacked up. And so I tripped over them and I knocked books all over the place. And, you know, my mother raised me to uh, pick up after myself, and so I'm trying to restack all these books. And I discovered there's a book laying open, and my eyes fell right on this one passage uh, about this particular person the biography was uh, 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 discussing and uh, going over and um, here was this man and it said he was walking up on a stage and the stage was at the University of Glasgow and at the University of Glasgow he was going to receive an honorary PhD. Now up until this time every uh, person who had ever walked on that stage to get an honorary PhD, PhD or anything else for that matter the students, largely male, would almost hoot them off the stage, uh, embarrassing and catcalls, and uh, just, uh, I guess it hasn't changed all that much in a hundred years, you know. And, and, but when this guy walks up, he is greeted, according to the biographer, he is greeted with the reverential applause of absolute awe-filled silence. Because before them stood a man who was emaciated by 21 bouts of malaria, his left arm hung by his side, having been mauled by a lion. He had given his life as an engineer traipsing around Africa to prepare the way for missionaries in the centuries to come. And his name was David Livingston. And when I read that story, I said, okay, I don't want just to weave my life into the everyday fabric of TikTok life. I, I don't want a job. I want to give myself to a mission like this guy did. I, I want my life to matter. I want my life to be larger than just some little 13-inch black and white TV screen. I want something about who I am, about my life, to carry with it significance, not I'm sure as a 17-year-old there was some arrogance and, you know, uh, pride or ego or vanity mixed in. But as much as I knew myself, I, it was because I wanted to make a difference for God. Now, I, I would readily have told you right then and there, I didn't know exactly what that meant. But I knew, even though I was, you know, at that point was a music major, so God, I, I want something big. I, 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 could, I started just devouring books. In fact, um, one of the very first books I can remember reading, my parents were a little worried about me because, you know, I liked Archie comic books or Green Lantern or Superman or whatever, uh, but I really didn't like anything that was mo mainly words without pictures. And one time my grandfather gave me a book, I was about 11 or 12 years old, and the book was uh, uh, the Arthur, the, the coming and the death of uh, Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And, and it just captivated me. 
And in my mind, right then and there, I decided that is how life is supposed to be. That life is more like fantasies, legends, and myths than it's like in the business books and history books and nonfiction section of any library or bookstore I have ever been in. And my experience these last 31 years is that is the case. That life can be as exciting or more exciting, as fulfilling as anything anyone ever read in one of those myths or legends or fantasies. Uh, it, it just, it, the older I get, the more I'm convinced. I tell my kids all the time, man, read, read these stories. This is the way life is supposed to be like. Now, as I said, one of the uh, uh, criteria for my life is I didn't want a job. Um, I wanted a mission. I wanted a life. Now, I have many different income sources. And one of those income sources is I'm an executive coach, a life coach. I coach a lot of businessmen, and 99.9% uh, .9 of them unbelievers. And it has been one of the most exciting adventures. Now, I had a gentleman call me a while back. And um, he said, listen, I, I, you've been recommended to me, and I'd like to sit down and talk to you and hire you uh, to be a consultant for my life for the next six months to a year. I said, fine. So I drove over to see him. We sat down. And I said, so what is it you really want? This man is incredibly uh, powerful in his uh, business world, uh, very successful in the American sense of that word successful. He had all the accoutrements. He had the large house and the uh, big cars and lots of cars and uh, vacations all over the world every year, etc., etc., etc. So we sit down and he says, my life is absolutely empty. There is no significance in my life. I think it might have something to do with I'm not spiritually connected, but I don't even know what that means. He says, I want to know God. Who, what, it, she, I, he's, I have no idea what that means, but I want to know God. Now, this guy's going to pay me a lot of money to do what actually I would do almost for free. This is a great country. <laughs> this is... But my experience with almost all of the men and women I've coached over the last few years is exactly what he just said. There is no sense of mission. You walk into a business. Uh, the lady behind the counter says, yeah, what do you want? Uh, the manager walks by you as if you're invisible. A teacher stands up in a classroom and talks as if there's a vacuum, uh, or at least if she's totally clueless that anybody's there. You would have no idea that she or he had any concept of exciting, motivating uh, people toward the vision of their discipline. Wherever you go, something seems to be lacking. Now I want to go back to this metaphor of fantasies and legends and myths. In my life, the greatest so-called preachers and teachers have been the storytellers. For me, I've learned far more about God and life from Melville or C.S. Lewis or Tolkien or Shakespeare uh, or you name them than I've done from a lot of places where I've, I've gone to church, sad to say. There has been something about these guys and the way they tell stories and what they communicated in their stories, especially when it came for me with fantasies and myths and with legends, especially fantasy. C.S. Lewis said, one of the 
strengths, if you will, one of the advantages of reading a good fantasy is, not escape, okay, one of the advantages is that it takes away the veil of familiarity. Now, what did he mean by that? When you're a child, you're, you're one years old, two years old, and you're kind of crawling around on the floor, and somehow your mother's in there, your father, and they're emptying the groceries into the uh, cupboards and the cabinets, and an apple falls. And the apple's sitting there right in front of you, and you see it. And it is astounding in its beauty, in its, its shape, in its form. And being a one or two-year-old child, everything goes into the mouth immediately. It tastes absolutely magical. It is an incredible experience. The first time you see a door and the door opens and someone goes through it and the door closes and they're not there anymore, that was magical, the whole concept of a door. I work in developing nations. You've probably read jokes on the internet. I've actually seen it happen where I bring in guys from the uh, barrios and provinces of the Philippines or in uh, uh, Kenya or Rwanda and they, they see a hotel for the first time and they see an elevator and someone walks into that elevator and the elevator closes and someone else walks out of the elevator to them that is absolutely astounding. It's magical. But by the time we're seven years old, it's whole hum, it's an apple. Whole hum, it's a door. Whole hum, it's an elevator. Whole hum, it's life. And the thing that a fantasy will do, according to C.S. Lewis, is that it takes away that familiarity, reminds you that the door is magical, reminds you that the apple is magical, it reminds you actually what is real, how life is really to show up, if we would open our eyes. In fact, one of the things about fantasies, if you remember uh, your C.S. Lewis or your, um, uh, uh, who was Lewis's uh, mentor? McDonald. Uh, if you remember the, their, their stories uh, in any of the great myths, the, the fantasy land, the enchanted forest, if you will, was always there. They just never saw it until one morning their eyes were open for whatever circumstance. Jesus comes and He says, the kingdom of God is right here. Everybody goes, where? Where? The Jews, the Israel, the Pharisees, where? I don't see it. It's right here. I don't see it. I, it's nowhere to be seen. And how many of us live our lives that way? So much of God's presence all around. You read the Bible? The Bible talks about trees clapping their hands. Well, that's not too practical. It's just a nice picture. And you read Psalm 148, God talks, uh, David, the psalmist talks about God sending the snow, God uh, sending the wind, God sending the hail. Creation is alive with the presence of God. Creation is alive with the presence of God. But we lose that sense of the numinous. We lose that sense of the aliveness. I remember uh, my son, who's almost nine, my youngest uh, my son, who's almost 19 now, when he was about five or six years old, he was sitting out in the backyard. And I could see him, he was sitting there for like 30, 45 minutes, and that's rather strange for, you know, a little guy. And so I walked out there, and I said, well, you okay? What you doing? And he said, well, Dad, I was thinking. He said, there's life in this grass, isn't there? And I said, well, yeah, there's life in the grass. And he said, there's life in that tree there too, isn't there? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, there's life in the tree. And he said, there, 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 there's life in the birds going by, and there's life in me. I said, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, right. 
Is it all the same life or is it some different form of life? Now, I got to tell you, I wouldn't have had a thought like that until I was in my late 20s and this kid's having him at five or six years old. You know, talk about being humbled. But he was seeking to clue into something that even at 48, I have to constantly kick myself to remind myself that creation is alive with the presence of God. And these fantasies that I was talking about remind us of that. In fact, I do believe that fantasies quite often mirror uh, reality. And I know my mom, she was concerned early on when I would read them, oh, this is escape. But you read fantasies, I mean, there is honor in battle, there is death for the sake of friends, there is defeat, there's tragedy. Uh, there's a lot of things in there that inspire children and us older children to live life the way it is supposed to be lived but we lose it. We can regain it in one small way by reading such stories. And when you read fantasies, one of the things that uh, hits me, you know, how they mirror reality is you don't always know who's good and bad, do you? No, that's life, isn't it? I mean, in the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Edmund gets there, you know, finally into Narnia, and uh, he meets the queen who's got to be wonderful because she's pretty and she gives him all the candy he wants. And he meets the lion who scares him half out of his wits, so that lion has to be evil. But later he discovers that the queen is wicked and Aslan is the creator-redeemer of all of Narnia. It wasn't as it appeared in the beginning, and that's life. Again, just another way of saying we, we can be reminded of how life is to be lived or can be lived by some of these great stories. Some of these uh, wicked witches we see you know, transformed. The frog turns into a prince. I mean, if that's not a metaphor for the converting nature of God's grace, I don't know what is. One of them, too, again, you don't always know who's sitting next to you. Lewis said, you look around right now at the people sitting next to you. You look around at the people you're going to be with over the next 24 hours, and you see people. You see just humans. C.S. Lewis said, you have never met a mere mortal. Never sitting next to you, in front of you, beside you, behind you, is a potential god or goddess or demon. But there is no such thing as a mere mortal. I mean, these are creations of God, of such stupendous capacities and abilities for greatness, for glory, for goodness, or for evil. And yet we treat them as ho-hum, just a human. Until God opens our eyes. And even then, we have to constantly pray for God to keep opening our eyes. The secret entrance in the fantasies, behind the closet, uh, in a kitchen, uh, through a book, it doesn't matter. It's always there. It's just a matter of asking God to open our eyes to be able to see what is actually going on around us. We read the very first few chapters of Genesis. God says, I want you, Adam, and through Adam corporately representing us, He said, I want you to go out into the world and I want you to make it a more beautiful, more productive place. You read uh, very quickly in the first few chapters, you can see the very beginnings of animal husbandry, geology, fisheries. Um, I believe uh, within another few chapters, you see the very first musicians and poets all of these things in seed form are right there in the very beginning of the creation story. God's saying to us, this world has been placed here for you to steward, for you to manage, for you to cultivate. 
And we notice that in the garden, even in the very beginning, there were no sacred profane dichotomies. There were no, well, this is a really holy thing. What I want you to do is count these rocks and, you know, the very first accountants and count these and put them all in a row. And uh, I want you to build a bridge so that Adam can, you know, and those were really useful things. And the person that just took care of the trees and the flowers that were only there for the pleasure of the other people, well, that was not quite as important. And of course, the priest that was going to take care of everybody he was going to be the most holy person but you see nothing like that in the garden there were no dichotomies that all the places all of the functions within that garden were potentially sacred holy endeavors and we forget that the veil of familiarity the veil that comes over our eyes maybe through poor theology poor teachings uh, maybe it's not a veil, maybe it's a, that, that, that grew over, maybe we just never knew any better and need to ask God to open our eyes. But the world around us is alive with God's presence and we're to go out there and to make it even more beautiful. We're to go out there and make it even more productive. We're to go out there and make it even more reflective of God's truth, God's love, God's beauty, God's justice, God's mercy, God's nature and everything that we do. So that any endeavor that we engage ourselves in can and should be an endeavor that glorifies God. Be an endeavor that brings God's presence into that part of the world, however small that part might be or however large that part might be. Now, you see in the, also in the very beginning, I mean, hey, um, I think you do anyway. The division of labor is obviously here. I mean, you've got resources all over the place. No one can do any one thing. Uh, you've got resources over here. You go through the Bible. You have languages that split people. You have gifts that make us, you know, uh, diverse and different. And uh, I think these are all very, uh, even having different races, I think all these are very important. The fact that you don't have all the gifts, the fact that you don't have all the time, the fact that you don't have all the talents, the fact that you don't have the oil, they do. You don't have the diamonds, they do. You don't have this, they do. You have this, they don't. Forces people in some way to work together. But even before there was a fall, even before there was a sin uh, that came into the garden, we see that there was labor. We see that there was obviously going to be specialties. And this is part, or specialization would be more accurate, this is part of God's plan for creation. For us to go out there and establish His name through our work. Of course, this tragic part of the story in the very beginning of the Bible is the fall. Adam and Eve decide they want to take another route. They want to follow their own star. They want to make their own way, create their own map. So sin enters into the creation, and with sin, you have arrogance, you have discord, disunity, disharmony, isolation, darkness, distrust. It goes on and on and on and on and on and on. Of course, again, this reality is mirrored in all the great myths and legends. It was wonderful, and then it was not. But God, in His mercy, as we read Scriptures, maintains His creation. He refuses to allow it to degenerate into absolute, utter chaos and darkness. He raises up Abraham, makes a covenant with him. And through him, he's going to form a people. And from these people, he raises up Israel. And he raises up kings, one king specifically, King David, through whom the Messiah will eventually come. God wasn't shocked. God didn't go, oh, oh, Matt, what, what do I do now? Whoops, there goes the world. I guess I'm just going to save a few people and let the world go to hell in a handbasket. 
That's it. That's all we can do. That is not what God shows us in His Word. God shows us His people constantly going out and taking dominion, cultivating the Word. What do you think the Great Commission where Jesus stands before His disciples and through them the church and says, go out and disciple the nations. I don't mean just get them saved. I mean make them disciplined followers of Christ, which obviously is going to apply to every area of life. There are no neutral places in the garden. There are no neutral places in my life. There's no neutral places in Lansing where we can say, oh, King's X, Jesus doesn't apply there. He applies everywhere. And He is everywhere. And our witness is, if there is some place where His light is not shining, is to get His light shining there. And I don't mean just through witnessing and evangelism, however important that is. I mean through the excellence of our craft, as well as, obviously, our character. Daniel prophesies in his uh, book in the Old Testament that a stone is going to come, and this stone is going to turn into a mountain that fills the earth. Isaiah says a son is going to be given, and that son is with him is going to come a kingdom. And the kingdom is going to be on his shoulders. That son came. That son came to restore, to reconcile us to God the Father and to God's original intention for having created us, which was what? Cultivate the earth. Bring glory to God in all of these areas of life throughout creation. That is... What Jesus came to say, hey, listen, the, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's right here just waiting for you to reach out. All you have to do is open your eyes and say, oh, wow, look at this. Now, Jesus said that uh, some of you standing here are not going to die until you see the kingdom coming with power. Now, my question is, are any of those people still around alive? I don't mean to be facetious, but no, they're not. So some of those people obviously saw the kingdom coming. I only bring this out because there are some Christians who are still waiting for it. And it has come with Christ, the kingdom of God. And that's what we're all about. Actually, that's what this conference is all about. The kingdom of God is the rule of God. The kingdom of God is the activity of His reigning. When Jesus tells us first to seek His kingdom, we're not seeking some other realm other than where we are. We're seeking that realm right here. That if you'll permit me to keep using that phrase, that magical realm that's all around us. Now, why would I use a metaphor of fantasy, etc., instead of theological phrases and, and other such things? Well, you know, I believe that most of us, if not every one of us sitting in here, have had more theology, more biblical phrases, more teaching thrown at us so that, again, there's a veil. We don't hear it anymore. We hear God's this, God's that, God's kingdom, God's around us, God's alive, yada, 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 yada. You know, but we don't hear it anymore. And so I'm constantly seeking to find ways of coming in through a back door or under a radar or pulling away the veil of familiarity and saying, okay, let's see if we can hear it this way. Instead of using a lot of theological phrases, let's go back and go over the fantasy, the myths, the legends that we grew up with that said, life is miraculous. The person sitting next to you is a miraculous creation. The mission that is potentially yours if you'll reach out and take it is astounding 
and its significance and what it can do. And even if that mission at this point of your life is to raise three little children, that is also astoundingly significant for what comes after when we leave. The ability to shape and form people whose souls are going to live forever. The ability to shape and form and love and introduce to God and the ways of God and, and give them an understanding of what God's called them to do in this earth. That is astounding. It's not just changing diapers and, you know, chasing rugrats and cleaning, you know, noses. And it has incredible significance. But we, again, forget because of the veil of familiarity that comes over. All my life I've used the analogy, or if you will, the metaphor of the Knights of the Round Table, Knights and Ladies of Camelot, as how I perceive Christianity, how it should be lived. That's how I see it. That's how I believe we should be perceived, if you will. No, I don't mean literally, you know, but insofar as there should be something about Christians that are so alive with the presence of God and character and, if you will, saltiness or leaven or light, to use biblical metaphors, that people are astounded. I was at a fundraising event uh, last year, and I was raising money for Sudan and some work that I have there and just speaking to a group of people for a short time. And I have no idea what I said or what I did, but I spoke for a sh just maybe 10 or 15 minutes, and, and I stepped down off of the stage, and the meeting was over, and... A uh, little girl about eight or nine years old runs up to me and she said, Dr. Wilson, could I ask you a question? And I said, well, yeah. And she motioned for me to kneel down. So I knelt down. I thought, oh, this is really going to be private. And, you know, I'm going to be careful here and make sure, you know, it's all, you know, the sanctity of the confessional. And um, she said, are you a Jedi Knight? And I said, excuse me? Are you a Jedi Knight? And I said, She ran out of the building. I knew it. Now, I have no idea what she was seeing or thinking, okay? My point is that there should be something about us like that that the world thinks, what, what is it that these people have? Not, oh, look how they kill each other, or oh, look how they argue with each other, or oh, look how they sit around and talk theology while people are starving to death all around them, or they should be seen by people who are honestly seeking. I understand no matter what we do, some people don't want to see and will not see. I got that. I understand that. But there are many people who are searching and looking for the kinds of people that will make them thirsty for the sort of faith in Christianity that we're supposed to be exhibiting, demonstrating, and declaring to the world around us. And that's the kind of Christianity that I want to exhibit and declare. I was flying home from the West Coast a while back, and um, I, I, it had been a long two days. I had, I had a hotel room that I never saw. Uh, that's how busy I was. And I couldn't wait to get to that plane, because from San Francisco to Atlanta, I was going to sleep. And I get on the plane, I sit down real quick, and I'm getting all adjusted, and I'm waiting for that thing to take off. And as soon as that bell goes off, ding, shoo, I'm back and gone. So we're, uh, the door's just about closed. One man runs on, and uh, immediately I could tell, you know, how do you know these things? I don't know. He's going to sit next to me. I mean, there, there was an empty seat. And sure enough, he walks over and sits down. Good-looking guy, about 35 years old, Armani suit, nice Italian shoes, presidential Rolex, real spiffy, kind of a, you know, Van Nuys-looking guy. And so he sits down, and 
And uh, we kind of, you know, just nod and the plane takes off and, and same thing. And the plane's off, that bell goes off, my seat goes all the way back, and all of a sudden there's this face over me and he says, Hi there, have you been washed in the blood? I said, excuse me? He said, hi there, have you been washed in the blood? And I said, has this worked for you in the past? And he said, excuse me, I said, I mean, do, do, do sinners repent and convert and come to Christ with this, you know, come on that you've just used with me? Well, no, because sinners resist God. And I said, well, maybe it's not a resisting God, maybe you're just nauseating. Maybe they just got grossed out. I mean, people today don't understand those metaphors. That's, they're clueless. They think the guy with the rainbow hair, the, you know, the Oakland uh, Raiders games that holds up John 3.16, they think that's some code to mom. They have no idea that's a scripture, much less what it stands for. I said, now tell me, does this work? It's not going to work. Sinners resist God. And I'm sitting there thinking there's this concept about Christianity. See, I believe when a person's eyes are open to the king and his kingdom, that one of the ways we know the king is reigning within, all right, just speaking of individuals at this point, is that they become more fully human, not less. We use the phrase holiness. It's a wonderful biblical word, all right, but it is freighted and packed with a lot of weird ideas, like Charlton Heston doing Moses and walking three inches above the ground, and having no earthly concerns, no chocolate mess kind of Christianity. And certainly, we become disembodied angels, and that is not the message of Christianity. That is not the message of the kingdom. Christians are out there becoming more human in ways that no one else can be human. One of the things that concerns people that are out, you know, witnessing and sharing Christ and, is the kind of fruit that they produce. I would say, I don't care who they are, Assemblies of God to Roman Catholic to Eastern Orthodox to Baptist to Methodist, they want to produce a particular kind of fruit. All I can say is I want to produce humans. I mean, I, let me tell you something, it, I'm being a, a bit facetious here, but when my children were young and still at home and young teenage years, uh, one of the things my wife and I prayed, okay, we can hold off on Christian, we will stand just if they would be human. Right? They, you know, it's like, okay, if they could just learn. Now, it's actually backwards. I, I think that you know, obviously without Christ there's, there's that level of humanity, but to be more fully human takes Christ. But somehow we have this image of Christianity that is weird, that is not biblical, and not even rooted in historical understanding of Christianity. And that's what here, we're here this weekend to look at. These people from their disciplines are all Christians within their disciplines. These disciplines are all, or at least can be, to use a biblical word, sanctified. They can be glorified. They can reflect the, the, the nature of God, the love, the justice, the truth, the beauty, the goodness, the grace, the mercy, the wisdom, the blessing, whatever, it can reflect that. If we will go in, first of all, as Christians, right, and then, of course, seeking to Christianize that area of the world that, or that discipline or that career or that job that we're involved in. One of my goals for this uh, weekend is to pray and to inspire you to pray that God would open your eyes. 
I, I pray that for myself all the time. Paul prays in Ephesians, God, open my eyes, grant to me, open the eyes of my heart, grant to me a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Open my eyes. I, I don't believe just because my eyes were open when I was an infant that they, 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 don't get, they can't be more fully opened. I want to see more. I want to understand more. I believe the world is such a stupendous place and there's still so little I understand and can see. I'm constant. God, open my eyes. God, heal. God, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see more of what you're doing in the earth. I want to see this enchanted forest and I do believe that's what I live in. That's what we live in. That's what the world is. And I want to see it. I want to understand. And I at least want to support people who cultivate it, even if... I'm still working on trying just to get my roses to bloom, you know. One of the things that I said in the very beginning was that I wanted a mission. I didn't want just a job. I wanted a mission. Now, I believe that all of us as Christians have missions. We have the Christian mission, mission that's for all of us given in scriptures to disciple the earth, to make disciples, or cultivate the earth, to make disciples of the nation, to live certain ways. I understand that. But under those universal, that universal commission, we have our own individual, unique mission in this world. And one of my jobs and joys is trying, is seeking to help people find out what is that? And my prayer this week, God, you know, hey, show me what, what is my mission? How do I carry that mission into the career I'm engaged in right now? Now, I, I, I want to leave you just with a couple of thoughts that... Um, <laughs> I was praying this morning, okay, God, how, how, how do we... Is there something we can do to help open our eyes? Is there something we can do to kind of shake loose some of the stuffiness and the staleness of the sort of Christianity many of us, no matter how hard we've tried or prayed it keeps you know like carbon monoxide kind of seeping in and are there things that we can do while we're praying for you to open our eyes to see this kingdom that christ came to reveal to us and one of the things that came to me was jesus's words about children you know that you can't come to the kingdom except for as a child and i thought you know that is one of the things that really i've got to fight i can get really serious you ever notice something about kids they rarely get serious Serious people become serial killers. They're dangerous. Knocks off bottles of Wheaties. And... Seriousness, I, I don't, seriousness is something that's quite dangerous in life to me. Serious, you know what G.K. Chesterton said? He said, Satan fell by force of gravity. He took himself too seriously. Oh, the kingdom of God. Uh, in my industry and in charity, some of these guys, you would think the kingdom of God was on their shoulders. We've got to save the world. No, we don't. We just have to be obedient. We've got to save the world. No, we don't. We just have to do what we can. It's our job to... No, we just enjoy God, enjoy life, go out and serve these people, love these people, demonstrate the love. Oh, I've got all this mission. No, man, that's whatever that is, that wasn't from God. There's something about... In fact, I was listening to a... a oh, what's his name? Uh, Peters, Tom Peters tape on the way over here from Cleveland the other day, yesterday. And he was talking about how the most successful entrepreneurs, the most successful, successful businesses are those whose, whose boardrooms are more like playrooms than they are, you know, uh, surgical wards. 
uh, people laughing and, 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 and seeking that kind of naivete they had as children so they can see the world in a way they'd not seen it before. They get rid of all the glasses they've had on and that, that they've adopted from Harvard MBA school or whatever. Okay, I want to see how I've never seen before. You know, I, I want to get that, that, I want to be careful how I say this, but that foolishness of a child, you know, that'll try anything, do anything, and it's okay to make mistakes because mistakes aren't sin, they're just learning process. I want that in my life. I want to have that childlikeness that, that, that makes it easy, uh, or easier, if you will, to enjoy creation as God meant it to be enjoyed. I want to cultivate that kind of curiosity that children have. We lose that. But Jesus said, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you come in as a child. And part of that curiosity to, to know more of God, to see more of life. This is, I don't, I don't have three messages. I mean, I've got three times, but I only have one message. It's just going to take me three times to get through the one message, okay? So the, you, all you've got right here is the introduction, okay? There, there's something about a childlike nature and, uh, that, that, that is so curious. They're willing to try anything, willing to do anything, willing to see things differently, willing to, okay, let's innovate this way. Okay, let's stop doing it. Okay, everybody else is already doing that. Let's, let's do this. And we lose that. And I don't think it's maturity. I think it's staleness. I think it's a loss of vision. I think it's a loss of childlikeness. Not childishness, but childlikeness that we need in order to be able to serve God and I think be more fully human, as I mentioned before. Let me give you just a few things here that uh, uh, I want to encourage you to try sometime, or uh, to do sometime over the, the next season. Any one of them, all of them. One of them is sometime today, laugh at yourself. That sounds awful like, where's that in the Bible? Oh, it is everywhere. God is God, you're not. Get over it. Laugh at yourself. It was amazing. I've said this for years, and I heard Drucker say it on his tape, uh, uh, Peter say it on his tape yesterday. He said he, he doesn't even want to hang out with people and won't coach people that can't laugh at themselves because they can't learn because they think they're supposed to know it all. People that laugh at themselves admit they're human. I've got a lot to learn. There's still a lot of growth I need. There's still a lot of things I don't see. Laugh at yourself. Um, I... I yeah. Read books outside of your discipline. Read books outside of your interest. Expand. Make friends outside of the world that you live in right now that are totally different from you. I was reading, and I'll refer to this later, uh, but uh, I, I was reading on the early uh, uh, experience of uh, Steve Jobs and uh, Apple, especially with the Macintosh, and it amazed me, one of the things that he did that nobody had ever done before is on his team, he not only had software design guys, but poets and artists, put them all together. Nobody had ever done something like that before. Like, why in the world would you bring in artists and poets? Why would you bring in artistic people to design? And what kind of stupidity is that? You bring in engineers. He didn't and revolutionized his part of the, of the world. Many times we can't see or don't see because of our experience. We need to bring in other people who see life differently. It expands our vision. I think another thing that, uh, <laughs> that it might really get a hobby. Now that sounds odd, but, but you know what? There is something about getting away from it all that refreshes seeing Jesus off playing with children, walking by the lake, the guy's going out fishing. 
We take ourselves so, it's hard to see when you're down there like this all the time. You've got to get away from it. We think that we see when we try harder to see. Sometimes we see when we just walk off from it. In fact, going back to this tape of Peter's, he was telling guys, hey, take a year off, just leave your job. Can you imagine? Join the Peace Corps for a year, three years. Oh, I'm 58, so what? They got room for you. Take six months off. Three days a week, take two hours off for lunch, walk around the lake, do something different. Why? Because A, it makes us more fully human, but B, in doing that, in, in, in relaxing ourselves, it makes us more open on this unconscious level. It makes us more, it's like we just let it go. We stop focusing on all this stuff. We just enjoy ourselves and enjoy whatever is at hand. And it is amazing what God does in those moments. If nothing else, just the rejuvenation makes us more productive, which again makes us more, gives us a greater capacity for glorifying God. The world around us is alive. The kingdom is all around us. My faith, my belief, my theology, and I'd be glad to uh, read you the scriptures. Uh, this morning, many of you took communion in your churches. According to the Bible, when you did that, you were also taking communion with the church triumphant, that there were angels all around you rejoicing, that metaphorically, if not in reality, Christ Himself, the Lamb of God, is on the throne and the church is having this formal worship service before the King. There are angels and archangels and seraphim and there's the church militant all around the world and the church triumphant. And it is absolutely stupendous what is really going on. And we walk out and go, ho hum, another service. Who are the Cubs playing today? What? We walk out and say, well, I didn't feel God. I didn't see God. Well, open your eyes. Open the eyes of your heart. The kingdom of God has come, is coming. And it is an incredible vision, an incredible experience. And it takes the most mundane or so-called mundane task and turns them into the most significant missions imaginable. So now, we'll get into the real message. Next time. Next time. Thank you.